Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Hilary Mantel is an extraordinary writer. She has written contemporary books, she has written uh, historical fiction, and she has embarked on this extraordinary project to uh, explore a man who has been in sore need of a great deal of revision. And she's done it so brilliantly that she's already won the Booker Prize once. Um, You wouldn't bet against it again. Uh, I would love to ask you to join me now in giving a very warm welcome to Hilary Mantel. I won't waste words, I'll just introduce you right away to Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell's now about 50 years old. He has a labourer's body, stocky, useful, running to fat. His black hair, greying now, and because of his pale, impermeable skin, which seems designed to resist rain as well as sun, people sneer that his father was an Irishman. Though really, he was a brewer and blacksmith at Putney, a shearsman too, a man with a finger in every pie, a scrapper and a brawler, a drunk and a bully, a man often hauled before the justices for punching someone, for cheating someone. How the son of such a man has achieved his present eminence is a question all Europe asks. Some say he came up with the Berlins, the Queen's family, Some say it was wholly through the late Cardinal Wolsey, his patron. Cromwell was in his confidence and made money for him and knew his secrets. Others say he haunts the company of sorcerers. He was out of the realm from boyhood. A hired soldier, a wool trader, a banker. No one knows where he's been and who he's met and is in no hurry to tell them. He never spares himself in the king's service. He knows his worth and merits and makes sure of his rewards. Officers, perquisites and title deeds, manor houses and farms. He has a way of getting his way. He has a method. He will charm a man or bribe him, coax him or threaten him. He will explain to a man where his true interests lie and he will introduce that same man to aspects of himself he didn't know existed. Every day, Master Secretary deals with grandees who, if they could, would destroy him with one vindictive swipe, as if he were a fly. Knowing this, he's distinguished by his courtesy, his calmness, and his indefatigable attention to England's business. He's not in the habit of explaining himself. He's not in the habit of discussing his successes. But whenever good fortune has called on him, he has been there, planted on the threshold, ready to fling open the door to her timid scratch on the wood. At home in his city house at Austin Friars, his portrait broods on the wall. 
his dark purposes wrapped in woolen fur, his hand clenched around a document as if he were throttling it. Hans had pushed a table back to trap him and said, Thomas, you mustn't laugh. And they proceeded on that basis, Hans humming as he worked and he staring ferociously into the middle distance. When he saw the portrait finished, he'd said, Christ, I look like a murderer. And his son Gregory said, didn't you know? <laughs> Copies are being made for his friends and for his admirers among the evangelicals in Germany. He won't part with the original, not now I've got used to it, he says. And so he comes into his hall to find versions of himself in various stages of becoming, a tentative outline, partly inked in. Where to begin with Cromwell? Some start with his sharp little eyes and some with his hat. Some evade the issue and paint his seal and scissors. Others pick out the turquoise ring given him by the cardinal. Wherever they begin, the final impact is the same. If he had a grievance against you, you wouldn't like to meet him at the dark of the moon. His father, Walter, used to say, my boy Thomas, give him a dirty look and he'll gouge your eye out. Trip him and he'll cut off your leg. But if you don't cut across him, he's a very gentleman and he'll stand anybody a drink. That's a beautiful metaphor for where you start. Where does, where does the novelist's line take off from the historian's? Well, it's interesting to see where the historians have to start first. Uh, Cromwell is a man who seems to have erased his own traces. He's an extremely well-documented man. He churned out reams and reams of paper in the course of his official career. But it's as if he leaves a long paper trail and at the end of it, he vanishes. So we start by looking at the results of his actions. That's where the historians start, with his work. And he is so hidden, and I think perhaps deliberately, that that's where historians have got to. So you have lots of books called Thomas Cromwell, but there isn't a man in there. They're all about his aspects of his work for Henry, for whom he was really minister of everything. The man has gone missing, and he has to be found in those rare moments in official letters when something breaks through, black humour or passion or anger, just in little flashes, valuable because they are so rare. And as Holbein sees him in that passage, he's a character who's seen by other people. So we look at... at what the people he worked with, what do they say about him? And what do you know when you've been through all those documents, all that paperwork? What were those flashes of black humour? Where does the, the title of this novel, Bring Up the Bodies, come? Oh, well, Bring Up the Bodies is simply the, the beginning of the writ um, for, um, it's like, you know, habeas corpus. You have the body, 
produce the bodies to the court. So this is the writ sent from the, um, the court that's going to try Anne Boleyn's lovers to the Tower of London where they're being held. Bring up the bodies for trial. And this, this Latin word corpus is a rather chilling one when translated into English because it gives you the idea that that body, this man accused of treason, is in fact already dead. Okay. We have the great advantage of knowing the history when the characters don't. Now, it's not a huge surprise to anybody in the audience. And can I just ask, how many people have already read Bring Up the Bodies here? Okay, the rest of you will not be wholly surprised to know that there <laughs> is a wedding and quite a few funerals. Um, <laughs> But he doesn't know that when we begin. No, the people don't know their own story. So they can't look back with the wisdom of hindsight and change what they do. They can't draw a moral from themselves. The suspense is created because it, it's in the gap between what we know and what they know, walking forward through their lives with no knowledge of the future, always negotiating their path in poor light, by the poor light of insufficient information, which is how we all live our lives, forwards. And I try to capture that. Hindsight is the greatest weapon in the historian's armory, but for the novelist it can't be. You have to walk forward with your characters into their unknown future. And the whole project is sort of riven with irony, the, the, the most sublime of which, which is the, the best joke ever made on primogeniture, is that this rough little irritating girl who's running around because Henry can't get a son is going to turn out to be the greatest monarch of English history. Yes. Um, Anne Boleyn, according to Henry, promised him a son. And, of course, what did she deliver first? But another useless girl who happened to be the future Elizabeth I, but no one knew it. So as far as Henry's concerned, um, he, he put a brave face on it. He just cancelled the jousts that were going to celebrate the baby's birth. Uh, and he was so sure of his prince that he had had official proclamations prepared uh, announcing the birth of a prince. And then, another girl, and you can see on the documents they had to squash in the rest of the word, some extra S's, and make it princess. When you say um, that you're dealing in a, a present, it's written often in the present tense, it's written mm. in indirect free speech, and we are with Cromwell. You've, your introduction already gives us the idea, and we've read Wolf Hall, so we know that we kind of love him. And then we're made complicit in some of the most terrible things that he is going to do. Now, was it always going to be in the present tense? I didn't know how it was going to sound until I... Well, if I say I heard a voice, that will make me sound completely mad. But this first... The first line of Wolf Hall came to me, so now get up. And I had the instant picture of 
the 15-year-old Thomas Cromwell lying on the ground in his own blood. Being, his father is kicking hell out of him and this is the incident that's going to precipitate his running away. What I didn't realise was that at the moment I sat down to write the line, we were going to be behind his eyes. This was going to be the viewpoint. And he began to unroll like a cinema film. So of course it's the present tense because we're living it second by second as it happens. He can see in close focus the stitching on his father's boot and he's thinking, in a moment, he could kill me. And of course I had the chilling realisation that this is where Cromwell begins and ends, on the scaffold, lying in his own blood, with a voice in his ear saying, so now get up. And the whole project was bookended. Um, what I, and so the decisions took themselves, the present tense, the viewpoint, they were taken in a second. What I didn't know then, it was going to be a trilogy. Um, it, it's, it's like Henry VIII, or, or me for that matter, it's always expanding. <laughs> but, but whilst expanding, what you've done is narrow the focus to a very short period of nine months, and even within that nine months, an even shorter period, of the real concentrated action of this book. Yes. Wolf, Hall, Wolf Hall was a much broader scale. Yes, so Wolf Hall took in, well, 50 years, if you count how it casts back to the Wars of the Roses and how it goes back into England's mythology. And then it ranges over at least 20 years in Cromwell's life. But yes, when you come to Wolf Hall, we begin, uh, we, you come to bring up the bodies and we begin in September 1535, the king has been on his summer holiday and the royal party have actually reached Wolf Hall in Wiltshire, the home of the Seymour family. So we find them there in their bucolic retreat, follow them back to London, and then through the tumultuous events of the new year, when Catherine of Aragon dies, when Henry himself is almost killed, and then through to the building of the conspiracy, the end of the Berlins. And then we go week by week, and then we go hour by hour, and then as Anne approaches the scaffold, minute by minute and second by second. My, my problem with this is that where do you go from there? Because it's so concentrated, it's so fine, it becomes almost like a, a, an exquisite poem by the end of this book. How can you possibly write something else that goes beyond that? That's why it was necessary to close the book there and say to the reader almost, I've had enough. I'm sure you've had enough. <laughs> we now need to go away, dwell with this a bit. Um, and we need to come back in a different mood. And we come back in the third volume, The Mirror and the Light. The, act the action of the two books will cross over. So we find Thomas Cromwell walking away from Anne Boleyn's scaffold and thinking, time for breakfast. <laughs> but as um, 
these people at the Tower of London have made such a mess of the recent executions, they probably burned breakfast as well. What we have in, in the, the beginning of Wolf Hall, uh, the mirror and the light, is a sort of bounce um, back into action. It's a new era. Jane Seymour is queen. What is this going to mean? Is the king going to be reconstructed? Is he going to get his son at last? Or is he, and Cromwell for that matter, are they trailing too much damage? Because the last chapter of uh, Bring Up the Bodies is called Spoils. And that means not only the spoils that are given out, shared out, after the fall of the Berlin family, but also the damage, the ruin, the destruction. How does one recover from a catastrophe, being involved in a catastrophe like the fall of the Berlins? There's a wonderful um, the bilateral relationship between Cromwell and Henry, where you get this man who has this wonderful patriarchal household, he has his son, he has all these other male members of his family, and it's run. It's a sort of house you desperately want to join. You, know, you want to be in Cromwell's gang. And then you have this chaotic, capricious, terrible uh, father figure whose worst crime, you, you don't get to really hate Henry, until the extraordinary hypocrisy of the, the beautiful line you have about um, him asking Cromwell what it means if a woman was uh, sexually adventurous and imaginative. Yes. And it's that moment where you find you sort of lose all respect for him. But do you see this book as, is that relationship Cromwell's central one? Because his wife has died, um, he has his own uh, retinue and his own staff, but the prime relationship will always be with his king. Wolsey was his central relationship, and Henry has destroyed Wolsey. But it, he's done it in such a way that he evades responsibility for it. Uh, and, and he will tell after-dinner stories about Wolsey, uh, you, you know, recalling those great days I used to have with the cardinal, as if Cromwell thinks it wasn't Henry, but some other king who had driven Wolsey to his death. And Henry is capable of this double think all the time. But then Cromwell realizes that the cardinal gone, or only reappearing occasionally as a voice in his ear or a ghost, then Henry is the central relationship of his life, for better or worse. He says, he has no friend but the King of England quite a friend to have. But what happens if Henry dies? And there's this fearful incident that is central to the book, which really occurred, where Henry was in the tilt yard, he took a fall, his horse came down on top of him, and he was unconscious for a couple of hours, and they thought he was dead. The Duke of Norfolk ran to tell Anne Boleyn, the king's dead. We know the incident backwards from Anne's relation, but I try to take you there into the tent where the king's body is carried and show you the scrapping that breaks out over this apparently inert corpse, the civil war that commences immediately. They think Henry stopped breathing. And the question is, where is Cromwell in all that? And can he take charge? And in the end, he's the one who slaps his hand down on Henry's chest and announces the king is breathing.
and off we go to the next phase in our lives. There's a wonderful line um, where he's looking at Henry and he says, and, and you say, he didn't like it when he prayed alone. He, he didn't like it when he didn't know what he was praying for. Yes. And then the delivery line, which is, Woolsey would have known. Woolsey would have known. Woolsey used to say to him, never let me hear you say, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Find out. <laughs> and this becomes Cromwell's speciality. And Cromwell's ultimate speciality is that after you've grown to love his capability, his uh, extraordinary adaptability and his, uh, his being the man who can put his hand on the chest and say the king lives, you get the ultimate sort of totalitarian, post-Orwellian kind of um, prosecutable force of thought crime. He actually wants to... Uh, um, indict these men not only for what they have done but what they might have done or even what they might have thought to have been done. It's the Treasons Act that allowed him to do that. This was the Treasons Act of 1534 but it harked back to the 14th century treason law. So the idea that thoughts can be crimes is not new. The, the crime was of imagining the death of the king because from imagining, it's a short, from imagination, it's a short step to action. Actually doing something to cause the death of the king. And this is how the supposed lovers of Anne Boleyn could be accused of treason. Because it was alleged that they were conspiring jointly and severally and also separately to bring about the death of Henry. And... Ironically, it was Anne Boleyn herself who had fed Cromwell this ammunition. Because when she was in the Tower of London, she was panic-stricken, she was desperate, she was trying to make sense of everything that had happened in the last few days. And she began to talk. And she began to, to rehearse a huge quarrel she'd had with Henry Norris, uh, who was one of the king's favourites and who was now in prison as a lover of Anne. And she'd told Norris off for being too familiar with her. And she'd said, you look for dead men's shoes, because if aught but good came to the king, you look to have me. And the moment she reported, these, she reported this quarrel, she spoke those words, Accompanying her was Lady Kingston, the constable's wife. She went straight out and told her husband. William Kingston wrote the words down. He sent them to Cromwell. It was done. And it's, it's a great sadness and a great horror um, that the words came out of her own mouth that would undo them all. The words that come out of people's mouths are neither of... Elizabethan or Tudor times, nor are they uh, exceptionally contemporary. How did you craft and how did you nuance the language that you were going to use that makes it feel both utterly present and, and historically kind of authentic? Well, I think it's something that people get really hung up about when they write historical fiction. And I think the rules are simple, really, that you have to privilege clarity of communication. I couldn't, 
I couldn't be authentic because none of you would know what my characters were talking about. Words have changed their meanings. Um, and I hate pastiche. So my decision really is to opt for a fairly standard, modern-ish idiom. But then there is something else I have to do, because where I get real words, like those words of Anne, I set myself to find a context for them and to, to use the real words and then smooth my dialogue around them so that hopefully you can't see the join. So this means that occasionally I am going to use words that are old but maybe new to the modern reader and I'm going to change the rhythm slightly every so often so that you have... Um, you have a sort of faint scent and flavour of Tudor England. I didn't know how to, how to do this when I began, but there's a wonderful book. Um, it's really the first biography in English. It was written by George Cavendish, who was a gentleman servant to Cardinal Wolsey. And about 15 years after these events, Cavendish sat down to write Wolsey's biography. But it was an intimate one, because he'd been there. He'd heard Wolsey talk. And George didn't scruple, like a novelist, to do dialogue. Uh, and he has tension. He has all the devices a novelist would employ. He knew Thomas Cromwell. He writes down Thomas Cromwell's words as best he can remember them. And so you get the flavour of people actually speaking to each other. So it was from the invaluable George that I learned to talk Tudor. <laughs> One of the things that struck me particularly forcefully was that there's some ways in which it seems this book and the portrayal of Cromwell as a, a secularist, the, the religion is only is as convenient as the politics or the, the class to him. Uh, is it something that you think that portrayal of him is, is a particularly modern one? I think there, there are many schools of thought among historians on this. I think that he was a man of genuinely religious feeling and religious commitment. After all, he committed a great part of his life to persuading Henry to permit the Bible in English to be placed in every church. This is a landmark in, in our, not only our religious history, but our social history. It's part of the creation of Englishness. There were no atheists in those days. Cromwell was a Protestant sympathizer. I think we can be sure of that. Whether he was actually a Lutheran, I don't know. I would dispute that. I think he thought the part the state would play once Henry became supreme head of the church was to stand between the warring factions and enforce, if you like, a kind of tolerance, a middle way. But... I think it will be in the next book, The Mirror and the Light, 
where I will have more leisure to explore this aspect of his work. Because here, it's all business. It's all the pressure of events, the necessity of survival, the desirability of revenge. This is not the book for philosophy. This is a book for real politic. Yeah, and he reaches for the rule of law before he reaches for the Bible. I mean, the, the portrayal of, of priests, and there's that wonderful line, yes. basted in self-regard. Ah, the, 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 the fatter priors, yeah. yes, of the big monasteries. He has no time for monasticism. Uh, his line on that is pretty clear. He thinks it's, as a Christian way of life, it should be brought to an end. Besides, he wants the money for Henry's depleted treasury. We tend to forget England's under threat of invasion. There's a, a sentence of excommunication hanging over Henry during these years. If that sentence is promulgated by the Pope, which it could be any day, then any ruler in Europe, it's a blessed enterprise if he invades Henry's realm, kills Henry and seizes the English crown. You have the Pope's official permission to do it. So England is beleaguered. Uh, certainly for as long as Anne Boleyn is queen, she is a kind of pariah state. Uh, Cromwell's thinking of the wealth of the monasteries out there, not doing very much, he thinks. Can we have some of this to build forts, please? But again, that, the disillusion of the monasteries is something that has only begun in this book. The real action in that regard takes place in the third book, when the large houses were dissolved, which I don't think was contemplated at this date. Not by Henry, anyway. I'll ask one more question before opening it to the audience. It's, a question about, it's not about the, the modernity of the language, but about the way in which much of what we love about him is incredibly contemporary, is incredibly relevant. It's not just the desire to take down the posh boys. The, there's a wonderful line where he says, all these people are related to each other, and he's yes. the blacksmith's son. Um, is that when, you, when you talk about him, when he talks about George, he's a, he's a, a modern father talking about a modern child. Gregory, yes. Gregory, yes. sorry. Um, there's so much of it which if you took out some of the details, would be a completely contemporary novel. And yet, you know, his list in the early part of the book about why Gregory is such a good boy, what he does right, um, it's all taken from Erasmus's book of manners, book of manners for the young, which was one of the most popular. It was, it was a 1530s bestseller. So it's almost a word-for-word -word transcription from Erasmus. Um, and yes, it shows that some essentials about the relationships between parents and children don't change. Um, and he is a modern man because he's, he was a great reformer. He was a revolutionary who had no recourse to a corpus of revolutionary doctrine, which is what makes him so extraordinary. But I do like to insist that the past be valued for its own terms, not as a rehearsal for the present. So when I'm writing about the economics of the 1530s and Cromwell's, the glint in Crom Cromwell's eye 
that is a welfare state. I am actually writing about the 1530s. I'm not just making a giant parable of events today. I think, you see, we have to honour and respect those people. They walked and talked just as, as we did. They're no less people because they happen to be dead. And they were not a rehearsal for us. So we have to respect their stories in their own right. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, we have um, 20 minutes or so for questions, and then I'd like to end the session by asking Hillary to read one more piece. Um, if you'd like to ask something, could you uh, put up your hand and could you possibly put the house lights up? For visibility's sake, could I start with the lady in the front? Hello there. Um, I'm just halfway through the second book, so I haven't fallen out of love with Cromwell. I hope he doesn't let me down. Um, but one of the many redeeming things, I think why we do like him so much, it's not just his relationship with Gregory, his son, but he has this extraordinary, as you called it, retinue around him, where he, he acts as a sort of paternal figure, he, he has protégés, he brings them on, he's trying to groom them. Um, this is a great story. So after the third one, I just wondered, firstly, is there any evidence for that? Is that actually how he ran his household? Mm. But also, the, you know, what happened to those people? Did they become the great figures? Did they follow in his footsteps? Just, you know, please, don't end it with three books. <laughs> well, there is, yes, there's, there's plenty of evidence of his dealings with his household. I mean, it is an attractive place in the way that the household of a mafia don is attractive. If you're on the inside, it's fine. Um, and he was, he was a great figure in London, you know, the, the detail that his kitchen was feeding 200 poor people twice a day is a, an accurate one. It comes a generation later from John Stowe's survey of London. Uh, his relationships with young people, again, are well attested. And it's, it's interesting because his son, Gregory, Gregory was so likable. He was a sweet boy. He was never going to follow in his father's footsteps. But Cromwell educated him as if he were a prince and as if he were going to found a, a, a dynasty. You know, as later you, you had the Cecils, it was really his nephew, Richard Cromwell, who was the chip off the old block. Uh, after Cromwell's death, uh, Gregory, by this stage, was married to the sister of Jane Seymour. And this afforded him some protection. And the king allowed him to continue in some of his titles and estates. But... Cromwell, having been con condemned as a traitor, his nephew Richard Cromwell turned up at court wearing mourning, which was an immensely brave thing to do, and of course the end of Richard's political career. Uh, I, could, I could give you a very, very long answer on this. A lot of our evidence comes from people like John Fox in the next generation, who knew and talked to some of the little boys who'd been the singing children in Thomas Cromwell's household. Uh, 
there's enough of a connection to the next generation for us to know rather a lot about these personal matters. There's a wonderful sense also that he does, in this benevolent patriarchal system in his household, he does take his, his best guys to go with him to go torturing too. So it's a... <laughs> uh, okay. um, uh, there, please, and then lady there. And is, if there's anybody at the back, yeah. Guy halfway up the rake. Um, I was really interested by what you said about um, smoothing your dialogue onto the actual words that were spoken by people. And I had a question about um, some of the more minor characters that it might have been more difficult to find historical evidence for, like Rafe Sadler, who's such a huge part of the book, but did he really exist? And if so, how oh, yeah. do you create him as a character in his own right? Yes, Rafe Sadler was brought up by Cromwell in his household from the age of about seven. Uh, and he became Cromwell's main man. He was his chief assistant. He was very much liked by Henry. Um, and he, um, in the course of this book, Rafe is whisked into the king's privy chamber, which gives Cromwell a, a direct line to what's happening in Henry's most private moments. So. Rafe is he's real, he's very well documented, and he's one of the few people in Henry's reign who negotiated himself right the way through it. He sung small and stayed in the country during the reign of, of Queen Mary. He came back under Elizabeth. He died the richest commoner in England, and he was still in a harness at the age of 85 at the trial of Mary, Queen of Scots. You couldn't make it up. <laughs> well, actually, she probably could, but... Yeah. Lady here. Yeah, I was just going to say, you managed to cover the whole of the French Revolution in one book with yes. all those characters and really, really strong characters. And yet Thomas Cromwell is three books. Three books. Three books. I don't know whether you'll be <laughs> glad or sorry to learn that. <laughs> three books ultimately, yes. Is, is there, what is there about him that sets him apart from people like Robespierre or um, Danton or the others? Of yeah, the it, it's not that he's intrinsically more fascinating, I think. It's that I wanted to do something different with this novel. In many ways, A Place of Greater Safety is a Brechtian novel. The characters parade for you on the stage with placards over their head saying what will happen next. This is much more, I suppose, the classic novelist technique of going inside the consciousness of one person and seeing the, eyes, the world through one person's eyes. But I myself did not realize the richness of the material until I was well into Wolf Hall. It was only when I came to write the story of Thomas Cromwell and Thomas More, and I realized how much was missing in, a, in the popular conception of this, and how, how much there was to say, how there was another story to be told. And it was at that point that I realized that Wolf Hall must end there. 
Then I went into what I thought would be the second and final volume, only to find the process repeating itself. And I feel a bit of an idiot as I say this, because should I not have realized from the first one? But I think fiction is just inherently unpredictable. And it's only when you are, you are living it, you are moving forward with the characters, scene by scene, moment by moment, and it's then you realize what there is to be done. And I only had what I thought was about a fortnight left in writing time, when it suddenly struck me in the space of a second, Anne's story is complete, and it must be left complete. We must then not just turn the page, we must close the book, and we must open on a new era. A question from the guy right up the back there. Um, I guess one of the wonderful things about that is that despite all the documentation, yes. there is very little Thomas Cromwell that's not quite cardboard in other fictional forms. I mean, even Robert yeah. Bolt gives you the villain, yes. not, yeah. and doesn't leave the imagination space to work. Yes, I mean, he's, he's become either a marginal figure or this pantomime villain. Actually, you know, he was central to the court and central to the decade of the 1530s. And not just the court, but national life as well. And once you realize that, you stand in his shoes, then this over-familiar history suddenly defamiliarizes itself. And also, like history, he, so far in this book, he survives it, and he is therefore the continuum that you're playing with. Yes, he's surviving and prospering, because people say, well, the next book must be about Cromwell's fall. But actually, he has four more years to thrive and prosper. His fall comes in the summer of 1540. It's very sudden. Thank yeah, you. Um, obviously, your, your mastery of the evidence and the research detail is so, so astonishing and um, what makes the novel so wonderful. But I wondered if there was at any point where you felt that uh, the history might, you might consciously bend some of the history to serve the effect of the novel. Well, do you know, as soon as you do that, you get into all sorts of trouble. You just, you just have to look at the Tudors on TV. Do you remember? Uh, you know, they decided that it was too complicated for the viewer if Henry had two sisters. So they rolled the two up into one. And then they had to, inv to invent an imaginary king of Portugal for her to marry because they'd, they'd, they'd killed off the King of France too soon. And, and then, you know, they decided, oh, you can't have too many geographical noblemen, so we can't have Norfolk and Suffolk. So they, they cut out the Duke of Norfolk, Anne's uncle, uh, one of the really outstanding features of the reign. And once you say to yourself, um, I'll just tidy this up a bit. <laughs> that's, that's where the rot sets in. You know, I, I remember when I was writing my book, A Place of Greater Safety, about the French Revolution, and I have three main characters. None of them were at the fall of the Bastille. 
And my agent said, well, couldn't you, you know? <laughs> Just, I, I have never been so shocked in my life. What's, what's the deal then? Where, there, where, the, where the actuality is not known, you are free to imagine, you're free yes. to invent, but yeah. you can't stray beyond anything that isn't true. Well, I spend a lot of time keeping tabs on people, and I have a card index to alert me to people's movements, so that if I put them in London, I know at least they could have been there, that they weren't in Calais or... You know, there's a moment in, in Wolf Hall, which is recapitulated in Bring Up the Bodies, where at the court, they're, they're putting on a horrible show, a sort of mask, the killing of Cardinal Wolsey. And it's being performed with the most grim relish and humour, and Cromwell is horrified. And the court is laughing and applauding. And an unknown voice cries out, shame, shame on you. Who is it? I really wanted it to be the poet Thomas Wyatt. But he was in Calais the previous week. <laughs> the previous week. If the tides were running for you, you could be over in eight hours. So I thought, okay, he's had a quick journey. And it's just a, a, a little instance of where you have just a bit of leeway. But if I had found out that he was proven to have been in Calais that week, I wouldn't have done it. And that voice would never have called But your, your card index is so Cromwellian. <laughs> yes, that, yes. That's the other thing. He is the, he's like a great metaphor for the, for the writer kind of controller, the, the puppet master of all... Okay, I'm going to draw... Yes. Sorry, your turn. Um, uh, uh, where's easiest? Can you take the one from the guy there, please? And then one from the lady down the front. Thank you very much. Uh, Thomas Cromwell, uh, as you portray him, is a fascinating man. You feel he would prosper in any age. Yes. Do you ever wonder if he were alive today, what he would be? He'd be what he was in those days. He'd be a banker. <laughs> but he'd be a really good banker. <laughs> he said in the Barclays Pavilion, I <laughs> Quietly and with enthusiasm. Well, yes, he was earnest about not letting money sit in coffers, but circulate among the king's subjects. Uh, <laughs> Let's hear it for the redistribution of wealth. Um, lady here. Yeah, I just wondered, um, when you're writing, how do you know when to stop researching and start writing? When, when does that moment come when you think, I've got enough? Or do you do all the research and then write? No, I, 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 I couldn't work like that, you know, that it's all cut and dried and this much I know, and then I go off and write. I, I have to do the broad general outlines first, all the biographies, all the card indexing, um, the structuring. But then when I come to write a particular scene, that's when I make a great intensive effort. I get... All, all my notes, I get all the authorities, all the documents, all the historians, lay them side by side, 
and just plunge into reading so that all the similarities and all the contradictions spring out at me. And with that in mind, go into the scene. And often until you write a particular scene, you don't know exactly what you need for it. So I don't think it can all be done in advance. But I suppose then the moment I stop and start writing is the moment they begin to talk. One of the extraordinary things about it, and one of his powers is, is language, not only the, the ability to intimidate and control and manipulate other people, but he's actually, he's lingua, he speaks a lot of languages. Yes. And, and the documents, the, the letters were written in French. The, yeah. So there's a vast amount of that stuff that must be coming at you from all sorts of directions all the time that you didn't know about. Well, fortunately, the, the, the Victorians, they're a double-edged sword here, um, they sorted out Cromwell's papers, uh, which had been impounded, taken to the Tower of London, and um, they'd just been left, except for raids on them from time to time. Um, but essentially, they were as he left them, which is probably a reflection of the mind of God. But the Victorians came along and sort of helpfully sorted them all out into date order, um, which doesn't help us to understand how he worked at all. But what the Victorians did do was make great calendars and digests of Henry's state papers so that what you have is quite within that single source, you, you have pulled in many documents from the archives of Vienna, of Venice. Um, I mean, I'm no linguist, I'm certainly no Latinist. And if it hadn't been for this massive editorial work uh, that went on in Victorian times, well, I think most scholars of Henry's reign couldn't operate because Letters and Papers is, is our multi-volume Bible. Can I ask one thing just before I ask Hilary to wrap this with a reading? Because I'm, I'm sort of gushingly and you know, <laughs> hopelessly... There's a, there's a paragraph in this book which I think is the most fantastic paragraph I've read for as long as I can remember and I know that she's not going to read it so can I just read you these two sentences what, what's happened is when Anne arrives to be executed she collapses and there's a wonderful moment where she said um, yes yeah, she just arrived at the Tower of yeah. London from the river mm. he Cromwell takes hold of her since no one else will do it and sets her back on her feet she weighs nothing and as he lifts her her wail breaks off as if her breath had been stopped Silent, she steadies herself against his shoulder, leans into him, intent, complicit, ready for the next thing they will do together, which is kill her. Phenomenal, huh? Um, thank you very much for being here. Hilary is going to read this last section and will then join you in the bookshop. So Anne has been imprisoned, um, the, her supposed lovers have been imprisoned, and the question is now, what are they going to charge them with? What documents is Cromwell going to have in his hand when he walks into court? When the indictments come to his hand, he sees at once that though the script is a clerk's, the king has been at work. He can hear the king's voice in every line, his outrage, jealousy, fear. 
It's not enough to say that she incited Henry Norris to adultery with her in October 1533, nor William Brereton in November the same year. Henry must imagine the base conversations and kisses, touchings, gifts. It is not enough to cite her conduct with Francis Weston in May 1534, or to allege that she lay down for Mark Smeaton, a man of low degree, in April last year. It is necessary to speak of the lovers' burning resentment of each other, of the Queen's furious jealousy of any other woman they look at. It's not enough to say that she sinned with her own brother. One must imagine the kisses, presents, jewels that passed between them and how they looked when she was alluring him with her tongue in the said George's mouth and the said George's tongue in hers. It's more like a conversation with George's wife, Lady Rockford, or any other scandal-loving woman than it is like a document one carries into court. But all the same, it has its merits, it makes a story, and it puts into the heads of those who will hear it certain pictures that will not easily be got out again. He says, you must add at every point and to every offence, and several days before and after, or a similar phrase that makes it clear that the offences are numerous, perhaps more numerous than the, even the parties themselves recollect. For in that way, he says, if there's specific denial of one date, one place, it will not be enough to injure the whole. And look what Anne has said. According to this paper, she has confessed she would never love the king in her heart. Never has, does not now, and never could. Like Thomas Cromwell, I, I know that the truth and the whole truth is not available to the court, not available to us, not available to history. And I must be content with making a story that will stick. And I hope with putting pictures in your head that will not easily be got out again. Thank you.